0: not to say that these are the only two options. I mean, we could also just say, you know what? We're going to truth and reconciliation this moment and let's let indigenous people decide what to do with it. I don't even think that's even being discussed, but you could imagine that having a kind of logic. You can imagine that would be a potentially good thing to do or at least
1: invite into the conversation, right?
0: You <laughs> know, in, re- in a meaningful way, not in a tokenized way, but like mm-hmm. really like what would it look like to indigenize psychedelics, like let people make decisions from an indigenous Perspective about what counts as trauma and stress and spirituality, and you know, it would change the way we talk about pathologizing mental health and illness, and then how to address it. That's a pretty big thing, and I don't think any electoral cycle is willing to invest in a model that will take more than four or five years to it's a tough sell
1: to lobby giving up your own power, (laughs) right. You're listening to the TripSitter podcast, where we demystify substances, break down the science behind them, and discuss the crazy world of psychedelic culture. Like having a TripSitter watch over your experience, our goal is to provide guidance and support in preparation for your psychedelic journey. Now sit back, relax, and enjoy the trip. I'm James. I'm a writer and contributor for TripSitter.
2: I'm Justin. I'm the founder, editor-in-chief of TripSitter.
0: My name is Erica Dick. I'm a professor and Canada Research Chair in the History of Health and Social Justice at the University of Saskatchewan.
1: You've done some crazy work. Uh, I I gave you a little bit of a warning beforehand because I tried to do it whenever we were doing our interview together. How how much have you actually published on this topic? I know that you've got books and and research papers. I know that you've worked alongside a bunch of other people on, on several other projects. Tell us a little bit about just the depth of your research on this topic.
0: Um, yeah, you warned me that that was going to be a tough question. And you're right. Um, I mean, I started off looking at a group of experiments that took place in Canada. And it was a sort of focused, almost regionalized approach. But over the past 20 years, I've continued to look at the history of psychedelics. And it's taken me to lots of different places. Some of it's been showcased in books and edited collections, I'm working on a couple of documentaries, we've done all sorts of things. And now working with Shakruna, the Institute for Psychedelic Plant Medicines, we've also started doing more translations, we've got a graphic novel out. So really trying to not only enrich the history and look at psychedelics more globally, but also to try to produce it in different formats so we can enrich the conversation in a variety of different formats. I didn't answer your quantitative question, but I don't think I will or can. <laughs>
1: That's okay. I think I told you, I tried to count it up like two or three times. And I was like, I don't think this is possible. <laughs> you've just been all over the place. What, what would you say are like the main areas that you feel like you've studied kind of the most?
0: Yeah, I mean, I started this research really in the late 1990s, early 2000s. And I was so fortunate then, you know, the conversation about psychedelics was very different. So even my access to people was quite different in the sense that I had to go through a lot of research ethics. I wasn't allowed to talk about people's direct or active drug consumption. Um, I got asked a lot of questions about my own. Um, and it just was a different kind of environment to be talking about these things. But the benefit was people like Humphrey Osmond was still alive. He'd had a stroke and was a bit compromised but I was able to talk with him on the phone through his daughter. I was able to meet with researchers, largely the ones from Saskatchewan, but also some of the patients who had been treated for alcoholism in the 1950s. And, you know, since publishing that work, and shortly after, most of that generation has passed on. I mean, many of them were in their 90s when I reached out to them. Um, So I do feel really honored and privileged to have had that opportunity. And even sort of by accident, I met Timothy Leary, once before I really even appreciated who he was as part of this history. So now I've been really working with uh, sometimes the next door ne- even next next generation so grandchildren it's really i'm working on a visual history right now so trying to collect photographs some of which are quite candid just to get a an image of you know what was what was it like to be working in that environment at the time and and then how that's maybe even influencing the way we think about psychedelics today so it's been kind of fun sort of layering in different ways to memorialize this past
1: what are some of those things that we can learn from that time so far that you've come across
0: one of the things i'm working on presently which is like literally Early on, my screen right now is looking at the roles played by imp- especially women in this context. So, often not named on public papers or published papers, rather. Uh, sometimes the wives or lab assistants of some of, you know, Albert Hoffman or Humphrey Oswald or Aldous Huxley for that matter. But talking to the children and grandchildren, I have a much greater appreciation for the roles played by these women in really helping to give language to some of the experiences early on or helping to manage, you know, create create safe environments in some cases. Often these contributions have been kind of muted or create, rendered invisible because they weren't the names on the papers or they weren't associated with a particular discovery. But it's clear that there have been really important roles played by people who are sort of in the shadows a little bit. And so that's been a fun project to try to look into that a little bit more. And I think beyond my historical fascination with this, I think there might be something really valuable in appreciating the roles played by what we might think of as caretakers in this environment as we think about what might be necessary to keep psychedelics safe going forward.
2: I love that. That's a good point. Like even on on TripSitter, we have like kind of a section kind of like profiles on, on various people throughout psychedelics, throughout history. And it's actually been very difficult to find famous like women contributors in the psychedelic space. You know, we have a list of people we want to cover and there's like 40, 50 men and maybe like six women on that whole list. We've really had to dig deep. And I know that that's not, not the truth. It's not that there is no women contributing. It's just that they're not the ones that are, like you said, getting their names on the papers or... You know, especially in like the sixties, seventies, eighties, like they weren't, you know, being talked about, going on in public, stuff like that. They're just kind of happening behind the scenes, still contributing. But it takes work to uncover that credit.
0: Yeah. I think, you know, if we look for, you know, for sort of famous psychonauts or something like that, it's harder to find women who kind of qualify in that category. But if we widen the frame a little bit and think about who kept Albert Hoffman safe on his bicycle trip, his lab assistant is pretty important. And after she got married, she left her position and and you know, her name change so she's like physically difficult to trace in the historical record but she kept the notes she like you know kept track of all of the things he was going through so you know that's really vitally important and yet it doesn't necessarily move to center stage when we think about where to grab that information from and and there's lots of stories like that I think you know Jean-Paul Sartre's trip he totally freaked out on masculine and Simone de Beauvoir his lover was the one holding his hand and calming him down and chasing away the lobster that he had hallucinated was following him so you know without her keeping keeping track of that and also keeping him safe we might not actually know that story and so it's a way of i'm trying to just sort of shift the focus a little bit to draw attention to you know just kind of moving the spotlight over a little bit to recognize who else was in the frame in those like famous historical moments i
2: love that yeah. are there any others you can think of right on the top of your head we can kind of give a quick blast right now
0: as part of shakruno we started a little project we're like well let's just do one a week and um after a year we just ran out of energy more so than running out of women but you know we i think we've over 70 women profiled on there now. And it's been a really exciting process because not only did we find some of the, I'll say kind of low hanging fruit, you know, the the examples that I gave you of women who were part of an encounter, but not profiled in that. But we also started looking at some of the more maybe generic ways that women have participated in the history of psychedelics, not necessarily as named participants, but midwives, for example, who kept secret the knowledge of ergot as they used it in healing ceremonies and in, in women's fertility. And it makes sense that those women didn't want to be named, they were participating in activities that were considered you know, illegal and immoral. So we're not going to call attention to them in that sense. But we want to recognize that women have played a different role, both in terms of securing psychedelics and safeguarding them. And the stakes were different for them, revealing that information or that knowledge. So over, like I said, a little over 70 profiles has also helped, I think, certainly helped me to appreciate a diversity of ways in which women have participated in this past, from caregivers, giving roles, but also sometimes as whistleblowers, sometimes you know, calling out bad behavior. And all of this has, you know, really kind of gendered implications in, in one respect, but also they tend to be put in a different category. So if you're looking through PubMed or something, this isn't where you find like victims of abuse. So you kind of have to look in different places in order to get a fuller picture, I think. And that's part of what we've been trying to do is just sort of widen that frame.
2: Where is that going to be published? Like where can people find that work?
0: It's on the Shakuruna website in a Women's Chronicles section. And then we've taken selections from that. And there's a book in Spanish, uh, Mujeres y which was published in 2022. And it'll be coming out in English in 2024. I don't have a specific date yet. We've gone through the page proofs on it. And we're just sort of taking some of those and giving a bit more of an introduction and a framing for it to try to push this into the conversation a little bit more broadly.
1: Love that. So last week, or, or like our last episode or whatever, we talked with Vincent Ratto. And one of the things that he mentioned that really stuck with me was that he said like all the things that he studies it's not that no one's ever studied it no one's ever written it down it's just that no one ever talks about it so it doesn't really get you know passed around and so i i do wonder with the stuff that you're working with i mean like i know you published personal letters and you know projects like that which seem like it probably took a a great deal of digging to be able to get to how much of it do you feel like is just right there on the surface and we're overlooking it and and how much of it is really is really buried as far as we kind of think it is.
0: It's a great question. Most of the work that I started doing was based on things that happened in the 1950s. And so it, in some ways, it kind of straddles that question a bit. I think if we think back to where things start to get digitized or where digitization projects have reached back into. That's changing all the time. And so our capacity to research things is, is changing dramatically. And yet there are still aspects that are, you know, you have to go to an archive to get to. You need to speak to someone. And so those layers make psychedelic history, I think, really intriguing because a lot of it was for good reason or, you know, for legal reasons, I should say, kept out of the mainstream conversations. So they're in some ways buried. But I find, too, when I started this in the 2000s. You know, I had to kind of quietly and convince people that I was a trustworthy investigator, that I wasn't here to, you know, out them for their psychedelic use, um, but really gaining trust of people to open up and even admit that they had participated in psychedelic trials. So some of the students or people who had been students in the 1950s didn't want to talk to me, for example. I said, no, no, I don't want to be associated with that. That conversation is different now. Now I have people in some respects sort of coming out of the woodwork saying, like, I want to talk about my grandfather who did this. Whereas before I had people trying to protect the reputation of their grandparents. And it's interesting to see that. And I think alongside that kind of willingness, or, you know, we see that psychedelics have a different kind of political capital today than they did even 20 years ago. It's changed the way that we can access some of this information, both in that digitization project, but also the willingness of people to share records, to donate them to archives. So now we can, I believe as historians or as researchers, we can start to think about asking different questions about where the underground fits into this. It was so hard to get access, to me at least, you know, maybe I didn't have the right kind of trust at that point either, but there's a greater willingness to share that information and recognize it as a legitimate, valuable contribution to the conversation about psychedelics today. So that makes it an exciting time to be a historian working in this field because people are willing to share that information, but you can't find it necessarily readily on the internet or in some kind of curated source. You really have to do some digging and some knitting together of different themes in order to come to some comfortable conclusion about how people fit together.
1: (laughs) Have you come across any kind of, of, like survey of personal recreational use during that time I feel like all of the information around that is all clinical that I've come across that's that's got to be very difficult to get like a meaningful number of <laughs> responses on that there
0: are a couple of what I found was um, actually somebody tipped me off to this I, I need to acknowledge that I gave a talk in gosh where was I it was in Kamloops uh, in British Columbia and uh, one of the professors in the audience gave me tipped me off to a dissertation that had been um, done in at the University of British Columbia. And here's a good, good example of women. So this woman published it under one name, she was married, she moved on and did other things. So that kind of linkage was severed because her, I couldn't track her name digitally. But he had a copy of it and he sent it to me. And what she did is she surveyed attitudes towards drug use in the Vancouver area. And although, you know, we might have questions about some of its methods now, it's a really great resource, especially qualitatively for capturing the different reasons why people said they wanted to take different drugs. And she focused on, psychedelics, although there are other drugs represented as well. And it's a really neat repository that moves outside of that clinical space. She's a psychology student at the time, but she's interested in why people are using drugs recreationally. I think there must be other studies like that. You know, there are more people going to grad school than ever before, certainly in North America. There must be other studies like that. And if we kind of dig a little bit again, they don't sort of pop up in the first searches. But if we go through those library systems or maybe physically visit some of the libraries that are don't have these digitized, I think there have got to be more of these, sociological and psychological studies that examine these kinds of things and that's kind of exciting to think about
1: yeah I mean people had to have been doing like trip reports in the 60s like there there's got to be there's got to be some kind of pre-internet era wid out there
0: <laughs> absolutely <laughs> and, you know, I think even the nature of clinical research at the time was, uh, the, oh, there was a lot of case reports. So you got these kind of long, you know, anecdotal stories about, you know, essentially trip reports. Some of them are captured in letters. We did a book of letters on Aldous Huxley and Humphrey Osmond, and they definitely talk about their experiences back and forth. So they're a de facto trip report. So you see that in correspondence, for sure. We see it with Timothy Leary's papers as well. Terence McKenna, like, you, you know, you can go to kind of the some of the classic psychonauts and recognize this in the letters and the correspondence people write into the them with like I had this experience what do you make of it kind of thing so I think there is the capacity to start to harness some of that now
2: I think too like that field is changing so quickly because I mean if you're trying to quantify like why people use specific drugs and you're looking back you know pre-2000 really there's what like mescaline LSD magic mushrooms ketamine's been around for a while that kind of stuff but now there are thousands of like designer drugs and synthetic cannabinoids and there's an infinite amount of, of drugs and every year there's new ones coming out different effects and probably people taking them for different reasons Reasons as well.
0: You're absolutely right. And I, I think the willingness to talk about them and the willingness to even divulge detailed information about them is also changing. So as there's a relaxing of the prohibition kind of overarching culture, I think people lied, you know, about what they took, because they didn't want to get in trouble. No doubt. Um, it makes good sense. And maybe lying is a harsh way to put it. But you know, there's a lot of sort of evading that. So you might talk about things in coded ways or something like that. But it makes it really hard for researchers to really appreciate that, like, what did they actually take? And now we have more pharmaceuticals in our environment than ever before in human history. So, talking about taking different substances or changing your mind in different ways is kind of mainstream already. So bringing psychedelics into that can have a different kind of political cachet. You can be cool or hip rather than you know, looking like a criminal. And so I think the kind of culture of acceptance has changed enough that people are willing to talk about it a little bit more openly and allows for that flourishing of those trip reports perhaps as well.
2: Do you find like like you're mentioning uh, people, especially in the past, they they may have lied to kind of cover up some of their, their drug use. Do you find maybe the opposite could be happening these days where people are almost lying in the other direction where it's like a, almost a badge of honor to be using psychedelics and kind of exaggerating their stories and their you know uses
0: yeah i mean i think it's certainly possible like how, how do you how do you measure the trip report as a like they're very personal intimate they're not usually quantified and this is one of the challenges i think for regulators and researchers right now to figure out like do you Do you take like the heroic story as evidence of change? Or do you look at how many people have changed? Even just trying to evaluate that, I think, is producing some confounding uh, issues, methodological issues. But yeah, I think you're right. I mean, I think there's a sense that you might be ripped off if you don't have a significant experience. So there may be a tendency to want to hyperbolize. Otherwise, maybe it's proof that there's actually something wrong. You know, people take this, especially as it's being built for changes in mental health or improvements in your mental health. If it doesn't work, despite the hype, that could actually have a a backlash effect.
1: I saw a ketamine ad on Facebook for like a depression treatment like a week ago. And it Mm -hmm. said like SSRIs, six weeks until you feel an effect, ketamine, one pill and cured. And I was like, wow, this is going to mess people up.
0: I can see the temptation to sort of like bolster the impact that psychedelics can have. We can move away from the daily dose, you know, more expensive. If you're taking it every day, let's assume that it's going to add up to more than a single dose. You know, there are all these reasons why I think psychedelics have needed that push, that hype perhaps, in order to get them taken seriously. And the backlash is just around the corner, I think, in that, okay, wait a second, but this is not a magic bullet. If people don't improve with psychedelics, this could lead to some Something worse, then what? This is supposed to be the thing that saves you. And this is not specific to psychedelics. We've seen this throughout the history of medicine that, you know, magic bullets and magic cures typically aren't.
2: <laughs> you can even kind of relate this back to tobacco, right? Like tobacco is very traditionally a, a healing herb, and then it gets into a society that just takes it to the extreme and mm-hmm. it's causing all kinds of cancers and all these bad things. And there's none of these things are black and white. And I feel like psychedelics are very similar. There's a lot of really good evidence and anecdotes of ketamine curing depression that people have been trying to treat for years. And there's Mm -hmm. a lot of cases where people take dissociatives especially and end up in a place of deep depression and existential anxiety, right? They can kind of go both ways.
0: And I think at least in the clinical reporting throughout the 20th century, there's been a tendency to want to downplay some of those less savory effects. And I'm not even talking about like, you know, Charles Manson or something really extreme like that. But even the kind of feelings of depression, or melancholy. So like a kind of lighter version of depression that was described by people like a day or two afterwards, or this kind of feeling of disorientation that lingered, persisted prior to any conversations about things we might think of as flashbacks. But a lot of those, I think, kind of got written out of the story you know it's like be quiet about that because we've got to get this thing through the regulatory regime or we've got to sort of move this into the mainstream menu of options and I think there's a I'm not a clinical researcher as I you know introduced myself and I I've never run a clinical trial so I don't mean to heap on any of that but it seems from the reporting right now that there's a tendency to follow that same pattern that we saw in the 1950s of sometimes sort of separating out those less savory or you know less positive effects like we'll deal with those later. There are a minority of cases. And I think bringing those together might be necessary for integrating psychedelics in a more uh, sustainable way.
1: Do you feel like the sensationalism around psychedelics now is greater than it was around the revolution era of the 60s and 70s? You know, how how does it compare?
0: This question has kept me up late at night uh, or early in the morning, I guess, depending on my brain. I mean, trying to compare what sensationalism looks like in a pre-digital age, With the digital age, it's got my head spinning. I don't know how or whether we even can really functionally compare, you know, before social media, there was, you know, quite a lot of hype around psychedelics in the 1960s, let's say, but it's almost like you can't compare that with the capacity to produce the same kind of hype or, you know, it's not even the same conversation. When you can produce digital communities and find like-minded people in a way that is unheard of in the 1960s. I think it's it's really hard to compare those things. Is it more hype than other things that are hyped up in the, in the 21st century? That might be a better comparison. And the answer is I don't really know. But I do think like the digital turn is actually part of psychedelic history as well. I mean, not only because a bunch of people who were engineers and, you know, Steve Jobs or these folks who were investing in producing large scale technology also took LSD and associated, like there's a specific relationship there. But I think the capacity to spread the information and to share recipes or share experiences or manage, you know, in a harm reduction sense um, has changed fundamentally with the capacity for digital media and social media to share those kinds of sources in clandestine and open ways. And so I don't know if it answers the question about hype necessarily, but I think it changes the way we can communicate about psychedelics in really fundamental ways.
1: That was a great answer. Thank you. Okay. So getting back to your specialty, Canada, I've heard you kind of have to explain this a few different times but i i know that there's a little bit of a difference in a sense between the history of psychedelics in canada and the history of psychedelics here and and I've, I've written on that and i've heard you talk about that but i do wonder about the cultures do you feel like the psychedelic culture in canada was different than it was here in the u.s do you feel like it was a similar kind of time or um you know what was what was the vibe there
0: yeah you know i think it's tempting to see a lot of the similarities obviously you know we share two large Degree, the common language, common media, and that was sort of hot in Canada at the time as well. And to bring back my favorite uh philosopher now these days, Marshall McLuhan. I mean, people had televisions, and so those kind of boundaries between these places was collapsing a little bit. You know, you could watch things that were happening in San Francisco in your television set, anywhere in Canada, basically. And even magazines were crossing the border in a different way. So I think there's a shared culture in some respects. But I think there were important distinctions as well. One being the healthcare systems were different and they were politicized in different ways. So it wasn't just a taking for granted of a difference, but this is the period in which Canada is developing what becomes Medicare, its publicly funded healthcare system in alignment with a number of other jurisdictions in the world, but importantly, not in the United States. And so the consequences of investing in a psychedelic therapy in a publicly funded healthcare environment is different than in one that uses an insurance-based model and where pharmaceutical companies have a different kind of economic standing. We had some sort of nationalized pharmaceutical companies. They don't exist anymore. But the context, the sort of implications for how would you embed psychedelics into that framework were different in Canada. It meant, I think, and sometimes there was a slight competitive advantage in terms of sustained funding from the government in order to do some of this research, but it didn't necessarily or didn't ultimately result in a pharmacare program where psychedelics were on the menu. And I think that's in part in reaction to what was going on south of our border, Um, looking at television, you know, the Grateful Dead concerts or, what's going on in the hate or the Hells Angels getting involved in drug trade that was not necessarily about psychedelics and yet got implicated in that. I think those kind of scare tactics ultimately reverberated North and changed some of that research and political environment as well. Uh, We didn't have uh, the same kind of cultural explosion that you saw in Greenwich Village or in the Haight-Ashbury. If you take those two kind of extreme examples, Toronto had a block, it's called Yorkville, and it was its sort of hippie haven. And, you know, Janice Joplin was there once and Neil Young performed there. And, you know, it had a kind of cultural cachet as well, but it really is um, much smaller scale. And so I think there was still a sense of, you know, making it in the United States as opposed to making it first in Canada.
1: Do you feel like the main difference in terms of the pharmaceutical industry in Canada versus here, you know, since it's a a socialized Medicare would be there's more of an incentive to create a cheaper way to treat as opposed to a ongoing and more expensive option? Is that kind of the oversimplified, obviously, sort of explanation of that?
0: I mean, I think it's really tempting to see it that way. And it's Um, Particularly from our 21st century perspective, we, you know, our our powerful hindsight allows us to be like, well, actually, the pharmaceutical industry won, you know, (laughs) we know that big pharma won. But I think in the 1950s, the writing was not yet on the wall. And in fact, much of the pharmaceutical development that was taking place with respect to antipsychotic medications, antidepressants, anti-anxiety medications was happening in Europe. Um, And so although the American pharmaceutical industry was inheriting some of those products and then relicensing and sometimes renaming them, I don't think it was clear at that point that this was going to be where where we got to by the 1980s when SSRIs really take off I think it's much easier to see like oh yeah this this is a, a pretty big consequence but I think when psychedelics were being investigated in the 1950s there were other competing paradigms at play within this big field of mental health and illness psychoanalysis was still pretty popular um, particularly in that in the United States so thinking about different ways that we could have imagined as the kind of mainstream first approach to treating mental illness, I think was very much in flux in the 1950s. It wasn't obvious that pharmaceuticals would sort of become the daily use main way that we now think of treating mental health and illness. If we think about today, the number of pharmaceuticals that are flowing through our medicine cabinets and our everything, our schools, our you know workplaces, it's almost unimaginable, I think, for those 1950s researchers to have predicted that we would all be sort of living in this very pharmaceutical lifestyle.
2: Yeah, that's very true. I'm in, I'm in Canada as well, actually. I'm Canadian. I'm in Calgary at the moment. Right, cool. um, a little little bit of a different thought. But one thing I'm kind of noticing on the ground here that seems very culturally different with Canada and the United States and other parts of the world. I mean, all of these psychedelics are still banned here in Canada, a very large portion of them. But the use is very open here and you can buy things online from companies. You know, you go to Vancouver and Toronto and they have dispensaries now for mushrooms and LSD and mescaline, and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. Like, what What's the deal with that? Why is that, you know, going on in Canada, and it's not going on anywhere else in a place where it's still totally illegal at the top level.
0: I don't know how nerdy you want me to get with this answer, but I've got like a super nerdy answer. Now that Go full I know, nerd. It, so I like... ready for it. <laughs> I think it might have something to do with federalism. Um, you know, I mean, okay, so I'm going to lean into your calgary and remind me there's um, a fellow in his 90s in Calgary who took a Sandos LSD with Humphrey Osmond, who I interviewed. If you want to chat with him, he's fantastic. He was a psychology awesome. student. Anyway, took it in 1957, still has his notes very lovely I think you know I think that one of the differences and'll I'll speak to the Canadian system and I would embarrass myself if I tried to compare it directly to the American system but I, hopefully you guys can help me work this out I mean the fact that like our Medicare has a, a document that at the federal level has you know five principles and then provinces get to shape it the way they want and municipalities fit into that as well in interpreting some of these guidelines and as much check and balance as there is is you like we won't give you your transfer payments and you and I living in Western Canada, certainly for our lives, and I think for the lives of our provinces, there's always been a kind of testing of those boundaries, pushing the edges to determine, is the federal government actually going to penalize us for this? Right, it's the same
2: thing with cannabis, you know? Yeah,
0: so Vancouver has been really edgy in its municipal state in terms of like, what happens if we just say, we're not going to penalize this, we're not going to put funding into the police to deal with cannabis, we're going to create safe injection sites against the explicit desires of the federal government, but there's no real policy. And so there's these kind of three different levels of government that are almost sort of testing each other, playing chicken in, in a way. I mean, that doesn't work with three, but if you'd follow the logic... And I think we're seeing that a little bit in Canada. We see it also in some parts of the United States. You know, Oregon has done a lot to sort of test these laws and see how far they can get locally before it sort of moves up the chain and now at a state level. Uh, We've seen it in Denver and I think less at the state level in Colorado, but Denver as a municipality has certainly pushed those edges as well. So it's an interesting game also that, you know, some future researcher may look back and see that this is actually a question of public policy and of governance that psychedelics are the canary in the coal mine perhaps there, it's not about psychedelics it's about whether municipalities can raise taxes to change this or lower taxes or whatever they might do but there's some of these are sort of flexing their muscle in terms of how we deal with you know if you can't raise enough funds and some provinces and our two are examples of this are not putting direct funding into harm reduction safe injection sites are almost again in Our two provinces, not in Vancouver, are run off of the philanthropy of the people who live in Calgary and Edmonton and Saskatoon. And they're
2: not technically legal, are they? Here,
0: no. I mean, I don't think they're technically illegal either. They're
2: in Um, kind of that gray area.
0: So provinces have the right to create the shape of their healthcare, so long as there's no impediment to going into those clinics. You know, unless you're a dentist or a chiropractor, you know, whatever. (laughs) There's lots of exceptions accounted to. Right. But harm reduction sort of fits in that gray area because, in some respects, uh, like safe injection sites, for example. Are they direct clinical application? Is this preventative medicine? Is this medicine at all? And so I think that's where we start to see this sort of clashing of public policy and it, it comes down to who's leading your province or what are the goals and ideologies. And we see this ricocheting through the states as well, that there's different opportunities here, I think for political leadership to take this on as a health issue or a human rights issue. And those are different budget lines. Does it fit into Medicare? Then you have a different kind of alignment with other policies. So this is my nerdy answer to like, I think it's complicated, but I think I've heard I mean my friends send me these messages or I get like a text from a friend of a picture of a mushroom dispensary that just opened in Ottawa. There are a handful of these places that are now openly flirting with the law, much like the cannabis story in Canada before. And I think one of the things in Canada, too, is we did decriminalize what we Justin Trudeau, I guess, decriminalized cannabis. And I think that gives a kind of, I guess, a a blueprint for maybe uh, for how psychedelics might go. And it gives a kind of sense of confidence that maybe we can just sort of find the same pattern and psychedelics will fit there. I don't think Canadians are ready to treat psychedelics in a public policy sense in the same way that they treated or accepted cannabis. In that
2: it's like it's it's not as casual an undertaking or...
0: I mean, I, I don't know what, what your feeling is, but I think there's still a bit more conservatism when it comes to psychedelics and cannabis was medically approved for a while. If you watch any of the national news, you know, the complaints were plentiful about the crappy supplies provided by the government that were grown by people who didn't know how to grow cannabis and people had to go outside of that. And so in some respects, this was just like meeting those needs from the, from the beginning, right? This is actually just aligning with their original policies. I don't think the same thing is happening with psychedelics. We're talking about like hundreds of approved patients for psychedelics. And that is not the same kind of groundswell of support for what might be seen as a human rights issue, despite attempts by a number of organizations to make that case for for psychedelics as a human rights issue.
1: Do you worry that that'll result in an eventual conservative snapback like we saw after the free love movement kind of came to an end?
0: Yeah, I think there's a real, there's a risk of backlash here. I'm a historian, I don't predict the future, but, uh, but yeah, I think, I think there's room for that. You know, I think it's really interesting right now to see the economic investment in psychedelics and that is going to have literally more capital, more skin in the game. And there's a bit of a clash here, I think, and I'm not sure how much it's being openly really sort of debated if we kind of know it, we don't want to talk about it, but you know, sometimes psychedelics have historically been associated with countercultural movements that see themselves on the left. And that's a huge generalization, a huge oversimplification. But, you know, radicals, you know, taking it to the state, but to align with the state is almost against that ethos in the first place. So there's a tension there. Then there's a kind of, you know, investment opportunity here that probably doesn't really go well with single dose, change your life, don't have to go get more (laughs) philosophy if you're going to make money on it if you're going to capitalize this commodity it's going to require something different but it kind of pulls psychedelics in a different direction and I don't know that these two sort of almost philosophies on how psychedelics should be mainstreamed have really been debated and wrestled in a meaningful way in the public discourse the public conscience and I think there's a lot at stake the conversation I think sometimes collapses into you know if we just get this thing regulated or these things regulated then we'll figure out the rest but I think pushing them into the existing Marketplace misses an opportunity to more deeply reconcile or understand the implications of psychedelics if they are going to be either taken quasi-legally by ordering them from Zoomies or wherever it might be, or you know, openly allowing Alberta's the only place in Canada right now that allows you to ask your psychiatrist, and your psychiatrist is supposed to be able to make a decision about whether or not it's in your best interest or in your best clinical interest to have access to psychedelic. Now, it just means that they've taken on the burden of applying to Health Canada for you. It's lots of red tape, but there are ways that provinces are trying to push this agenda a little bit, and I don't know, we'll see what happens.
2: That's interesting. You said what you just said about Alberta. So like, if, if your psychiatrist deems you a candidate for psychedelic therapy, like, is it through a government program or is it just like, where do you source it or how how does that even work?
0: It's a really good question. It's, it's interesting, and again, it kind of it fits with Alberta history. You know, Alberta has often been a province that sort of pushes the envelope sometimes with with respect to federal laws. So Alberta changed this law. It came into effect in January of this year. That psychiatrists in Alberta are now part. Of, they're the only group. So psychologists or social workers or family doctors can't do it. But psychiatrists, it's at their discretion as to whether or not somebody qualifies for psychedelic assisted therapy what kind of psychedelic-assisted therapy, where you get your sources, those are not specified in the change in the law. So it's raised a number of questions as well amongst the psychedelic community in Canada and policymakers. I was talking to folks from Health Canada, and it's it's not clear. Health Canada has tried to sort of catch up in some respects or respond perhaps by acknowledging and recognizing certain groups that are allowed to be bona fide producers of psychedelics, both for clinical trials federally or sort of at the federal level, but also for things like this Alberta initiative. I haven't seen any numbers though. I don't know how many people are lining up or, you know, driving to Calgary to try this out. Um, and I don't know if it's covered. It would be covered if you're an Alberta health card, but I don't know if my Saskatchewan health card would allow me... So there's a lot of questions that I think will be answered as people test this new project.
2: It's a work in progress. Yeah, there Go are ahead. other
0: lives in Canada, but that one's I think the most sort of bold in one respect in that it's it covers the whole province.
2: Definitely, if, especially if they don't have any clear specifics. Like, are they allowing people to use LSD? Is it specifically mushrooms? M- MDMA? Like, is there a list of approved substances? So none right. of that stuff has been worked out quite yet. Hey.
0: You know, and don't quote me on this part. I haven't read the finer points of the of the statement that came forward, but I do think that there's a list of approved substances goes past ketamine, because I know ketamine is permitted across most of Canada in specific ways. And that kind of so your mode of use changes, but I do think it includes MDMA. Psilocybin. Uh, I don't know that it includes LSD or masculine. I certainly haven't seen that, but I I haven't read all the words of that document either. So stay posted, or maybe we can chat after and between the two of us figure it out.
2: Right. There's also like I believe this is across Canada. The use of psilocybin for terminal illness is is mm-hmm. approved. Right. Is there any other ones like that? Like it's I not mean, approved. academy for depression. It's not approved.
0: It's not approved. There's a, a special access program or uh, Section 56 exemption. These are two avenues. One is where patients can directly apply. So one of the patients here in Saskatoon, Thomas Hartle, was the first to do this. There's been some news about him. He had a stage four cancer diagnosis, and it's a long story that he's talked about. um, But suffice to say, he qualified for having sort of excruciating existential angst due to the nature of his diagnosis. They didn't know how long he had to live, but it was probably not long. His anxiety scales skyrocketed, And he qualified and applied to Health Canada for an exemption. The exemption for patients means that the responsibility essentially falls on them. They have to secure the supplies. They have to find someone to administer it and monitor them. They have to meet different criteria. But Health Canada just says, we give you a permit. You will not be charged taking, in this case, psilocybin for your end of life anxiety. As far as I know, there were fewer than 200 of those exemptions approved by Health Canada over the past two years. Again, as far as I know, all but one or maybe a couple were for end of life anxiety. One was major depression. Now Health Canada has stopped making those approvals and is encouraging psychiatrists to go through a different route, which is called a special access program, where psychiatrists apply and they take that responsibility then. So psychiatrists are responsible for the supplies and administering and everything else. And there's a bit of a a bottleneck in the system, it seems right now, because now Health Canada has slowed those approvals as well, saying that we're not making any more approvals. I don't even know if they've declared that, but essentially they have without clinical trials. And so now you have to get research units investing in clinical trials. And that aligns more with what's going on in the United States. We see lots more clinical trials there. Canada's been a bit slow to respond. And some of the clinical trials are achieving breakthrough status. The FDA has designated MDMA and psilocybin as breakthrough therapies for post-traumatic stress disorder, Uh, major depression. And I think Canada's picking up on that.
2: Yeah. And MAPS just submitted that protocol for MDMA therapy as well. Do you think that that will apply to Canada as well? Like, do they submit the same kind of application in Canada and and bring that within a couple of years as well? Or is that not on the table yet?
0: There's no sort of legal mechanism in place to adopt something specifically from the United States. But I think the conversations are very much influenced by what's going on in the US. And Australia has also recently allowed for um, MDMA, is it MDMA or psilocybin? And I can't recall MDMA, now. Yeah. And uh, I know that you know Canada is one of the legal suppliers of that MDMA. So there are some interesting sort of bilateral or transnational things going on here, where there are shared agreements that don't necessarily result in shared policy but there are definitely conversations. So places like Health Canada, Justice Canada would be very aware of what's going on elsewhere. And this might be a case too of sort of letting another jurisdiction take the lead and then making a response or-, or Kind of
2: see what happens.
0: Yeah, and I think that's partly why those mushroom dispensaries haven't been closed down in Canada. Like see what happens. If and see, I don't know- if Yeah, see how
2: bad it gets. It,
0: yeah, <laughs> yeah.
2: Same, with the, same with cannabis too, right? They let these, totally. these shops pop up a few years, nothing really went down. Nothing really bad happened, and yeah, they then they they legalized it. They brought it into legal.
0: Yeah, and now they're everywhere.
2: Yeah,
0: I don't know if you saw the story yesterday about how they're not making enough returns on their investment, and they might have to get subsidized. And
1: (laughs) what? Yeah. Oh, the cannabis. Yeah. (laughs) Oh wow. I wanted to bring up something that I feel like we've sort of talked around a little bit, but I haven't really addressed. But I feel like something I've noticed a lot lately is because obviously funding is a disaster for clinical research. It's, it's incredibly hard to get any kind of funding if you don't have like a financial potential with the success of your research. And even then you have to have like about an 80% chance that you're going to be able to show success, I feel like, in order to get funding. <laughs> so... <laughs> Something that is really sticking out to me lately is that most of the funding for a lot of these research studies comes from big players within the corporate pharma industry not even just for psychedelics but I mean across the board for pharmaceuticals in a lot of ways has it kind of always been that way I feel like because of that we we don't see a whole lot of studies on the effects of psychedelics on healthy individuals because there's less money to gain than there is for individuals with post-traumatic stress disorder from war combat or something like crazy like that which is like inherently like a more dangerous participant for us to be studying on. Do you feel like, historically speaking, there was more of an interest in the effects of psychedelics on healthy participants and on studies that didn't necessarily have a a financial interest? Or do you feel like it's kind of always been money-driven?
0: It's a tricky question to answer because I think the nature of psychedelic research in the 1950s was also it was different. Um, The idea of self-experimentation, for example, it wasn't that strange. Uh, Psychoanalysts have to go through psychoanalysis before they can practice their trade. So if you're working in this kind of environment, taking a psychedelic, much like, you know, earlier experimenters who were taking their own nitrous oxide, be like, okay, how do I explain to my patient what it's going to be like? Well, I better have an experience with that. Now we think of that as unethical um that's you know we don't expect our physicians to have gone through you know radiation therapy in order to explain what your cancer treatment is going to be like. And maybe we even value that. But I think there are trade-offs by sort of choosing one basket over the other. Like if we put all our eggs in one or the other. And psychedelics, I think historically always had integrated into them this idea that you had to experience them in order to describe them, to appreciate them, to think about doses and things like that. So there was a lot of anecdote involved and there was a lot of sort of personal experience at stake. And that aligns very neatly with a lot of history of medicine, you know, doctors had to apprentice before they could be doctors. It wasn't about going to school until the 20th century. I mean, it, it, this is a long period, so it's not so weird. It's not so unique to psychedelics. But I think when we kind of re-import those into the 21st century model, they look strange. You know, what we need to do is we need to have nurses and healthy individuals taking these so that we understand what's going on. That's like, what? That's crazy. It It isn't really if we take a longer view. But I think you're right that also a lot of this is driven by the economics at stake. So we start talking about microdosing, we might be able to open up some of those conversations in a slightly different way if we're talking about taking something every day or at least taking it for a sustained period of time. And if we talk about single, maybe even heroic doses to you know, transform someone's life in a single dose. We we probably should also be talking about the other things like the psychotherapy and all of the follow-up and integration. But we tend to I think the reports right now, particularly in mainstream media, are not really focusing on that economic piece as well. That other piece that would be inherited by one's insurance system, if you will, it might not be. And I think without that, it doesn't matter whether it's it's a heroic dose or whether it's MDMA or psilocybin. I, I think there are real risks involved in seizing upon the psychedelic itself, as opposed to psychedelics in combination with whatever else it might be. And that kind of fudges the healthy or not healthy subject thing, because it's a way to to carve up this, this moment. But in, in a way, I think it's a bit artificial. Like we don't have enough information about psychedelics and studying them like a regular daily dose pharmaceutical, I think does not produce the right kind of information to make evidence-based decisions about their impact.
2: Yeah, it doesn't quite apply. It doesn't quite work. And especially yeah. like when you're talking about the base the importance of integration, right? Like you have your psychedelic experience and you need six to 10 therapy sessions after that. How is that yeah. being included in the, both the research and in how this is being paid for either, you know?
0: Yeah. That's not as sexy a headline, like mm-hmm. psychedelics plus 12 hours of session changed my life, you know, <laughs> exactly. No, <I> <laughs> toad venom yeah. and, you know, die a little. <laughs> <laughs> like, it it just has a different kind of cachet and this different, like, it, I think it appeals to this, like, look, there's an existential crisis in the world, you know, we're all coughing on smoke these days, and some of us are still, you know, aware of a pandemic that lingers. There's some pretty nasty stuff out there, but, you know, what I want is the 12-minute five MEO DMT experience that's going to help me
2: that's really going to change uh, my life really change things around for me like
0: <laughs> and that's just completely out of alignment with what is actually at stake in the world right now right. I, I believe not to mention like wars and things you
2: know? that's right and global warming and all this stuff that's happening yeah. on everyone's minds yeah
0: so i don't know i think there's a tension there in there's a lot of reason to look to psychedelics, and they have a storied past that might help us to confront some of these larger existential feelings of angst that legitimately exist. Like it's not a pathology. Like we should be worried. <laughs>
1: like
0: things <laughs> are fire. <higher. laughs> if you're not worried, that's a problem. Right. Yeah. So that comes from a legacy of like sort of integrating the natural world with our mental world and our spiritual world and psychedelics that really are a kind of rich place to start for like, okay, we got to wake up and pay attention to this, but commodifying them, capitalizing them and turning them into, I don't know, Prozac or or whatever, rather you pick your favorite uh, antidepressant seems to be a mismatch for their potential. I couldn't
2: agree more. And I'm, I'm seeing a lot of this with this, these ketamine clinics and you know, there's a lot of good research for ketamine, but not when you just rock up into the clinic, get hooked up to an IV for 30 minutes, and then sent on your way, come back in two weeks or whatever.
1: Yeah, that's- I, I've had two friends tell me that they're like looking into ketamine just because it's the only option here. And I'm like, that's totally cool. But like, I think the best psychedelic for whatever you're looking for is just one that you're comfortable with, that you understand, and like you're with a person you trust. And we we tend to think like, oh, ketamine's better because it's legal, but it's like legal through a loophole. It's not like <laughs> it's not like it's like a FDA approved treatment for depression. But I, I hadn't thought about that before either about how like if you're looking at like mushrooms as like a treatment for PTSD. Like you wouldn't expect to do like an SSRI study on 24 healthy participants. I I see like how that's unethical, but it is kind of funny because like people, people take recreationally psychedelics all the time and have for decades or centuries or thousands of years or however long. But yeah, I think that that's a really interesting kind of difference uh, between the two
0: going through the medical model seems like the shortest distance to the goal in the sense that this might be the best way to get, or the, the quickest way, the most efficient way to get psychedelics recognized as safe or to reduce their risk profile. And from there, you can kind of take the cannabis route, if you will, and then say, yeah. okay, that actually, you know, you can get these at 7-Eleven or whatever. You, you can open it up to a, lo- a wider market. And I'm not convinced that that is the model that we should be following, but it seems that there's a sense that the medical model is the best way to reduce that risk assessment or its profile. But you're right. I think it undermines or ignores even the healthy people taking this or or maybe not healthy, but you know, aren't coming through a clinical encounter. You know, yeah. Like what if I'm like, just a little bummed, doctors, right? Yeah. yeah. Or <laughs> you know, th- there are all sorts of ways that people have taken this, we know, even to enhance creativity. Um, to like, I believe and um, a relatively good authority from some oral histories, but you know, you guys can argue with me if you like. I believe that Jerry Garcia took some LSD and uh, it enhanced his <laughs> i'd
1: heard I'd, I'd heard this rumor but i've also yeah. heard some counter evidence so
0: <laughs> you might have taken some other things too yeah um, but like some of these kind of legends of artistic expression have also been implicated in and or engineers you know have talked about these eureka moments, these aha moments that led to something quite profound that many, many people have benefited from. And uh, there's a lot of evidence, um, some of it in biographies and a lot of it kind of buried (laughs) back to your question of healthy volunteers. It began in 1951, so fairly early as uh, people like Humphrey Osmond and Abe Hoffer and John Smithies were developing this theory of a model psychosis. This idea that you could take a otherwise healthy brain. Give it, in this case, mescaline. Later, LSD. Later, yet psilocybin, and have a window into psychosis. Now, the part of the reason for this was that Henry Osmond was the superintendent of the major mental hospital in Saskatchewan, and many of his patients, particularly the really difficult to treat ones, were suffering from some kind of psychosis. This is early days of the first DSM, so even the language is a bit elastic here. Um, so it's schizophrenia. It could be bipolar disorder with psychosis. There are a variety of things. That Needless to say, he said, these are people who are like the most profoundly estranged from their families, the most profoundly sort of ill in the sense that they cannot cope on their own. They don't necessarily communicate. They don't seem to be living in a shared reality. All of these things which made him say, like, how do we connect? And the idea was, well, you have a psychedelic experience and it allows you to at least appreciate how you can be living in an altered reality from those around you. So it's not the same. You may not, you know, have auditory hallucinations in the same way. The sort of image or the the experience itself might differ, but the sense of losing your connection to yourself was significant. And he believed should be part of a training process for psychiatric nurses, social workers, psychologists, even some cabinet ministers. And it worked. People were starting to come into these training programs and it wasn't like, that's the thing you do. It's that as part of all of the other training was a window into this so that you could appreciate why someone might be responding in a way that seems aggressive or violent or withdrawn. You might not understand why, but you can appreciate that they might feel that way. Of, some
1: empathy towards their exactly. experience. Yeah. 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 I think that's one of the coolest things. Cause you know, I don't know if they actually believed it was like a complete model of psychosis at the time, but I just think that that's so cool that it was like researchers experimenting with drugs for the purpose of better understanding and empathizing with the people that were in their care. That's that's really interesting. And yeah. I also would love to hear a little bit more about the study where they did that for architectural design. I can't remember the yeah. the details of that because the, the model psychosis thing is really fascinating to me. And I don't really have like a good reason for it. I just think that it's really interesting that it was just purely to try to like, understand and like empathize with someone else. So can you talk a little bit about the architectural design and uh, how that was undertaken? And yeah, I'll just let you take it. <laughs>
0: sure. I'll just give one quick caveat just so that I don't overly really simplify the model psychosis. Initially, they did think that by producing a model psychosis, you could also use it as a theoretical tool for understanding organic psychosis. If you can chemically create psychosis then could you chemically unlock it or reverse it
1: oh that's and, really interesting too
0: yeah so they also one of the psychiatrists working on it also had a phd in biochemistry and he was kind of a a leading advocate for he ends up promoting orthomolecular psychiatry or a vitamin therapy for psychosis for schizophrenia in particular and his argument is that if you can create this in otherwise what seem to be healthy individuals you know we must be able to understand brain chemistry to such a degree that we can figure out what combination of things led to that break often it's described as a psychotic break the first time someone enters into this you know usually in a kind of adolescent stage or or late adolescence that was the other function of the model psychosis was sort of unlocking Brain chemistry, in a very general way to put it. In 1957, Humphrey Osmond, with the help of the Premier then Tommy Douglas, who's the guy who kind of ushers in Medicare, he's the visionary behind it. They invited an architect to come to the hospital in Weyburn, this mental hospital, and Kiyoshi Izumi is his name. He came to Saskatchewan during the Second World War when Canada and the United States were interning Japanese people, Japanese Americans, Japanese Canadians after the bombing of Pearl Harbor. Saskatchewan didn't intern people, not necessarily because they were. So enlightened but you know they just did a cost-benefit analysis and said like there aren't enough japanese canadians here to warrant uh, like purpose-built facilities for them so they had them under kind of house arrest they were monitored by the rcmp a police force but there was a tiny bit more freedom so he leaves his home in british columbia he ends up in saskatchewan and he kind of hides out there ends up getting married in saskatchewan after going to the london school of economics to get his degree in architecture and he becomes friends with some of these psychedelic folks so he and his wife were at humphrey Osmond's house For dinner when they took lsd for the first time he and his wife took it for the first time and osmond suggested to him that what they really needed and part of this is a search for the language to describe psychedelics and what they do right which i think we're still doing part of what he felt what osmond felt they needed was an architect's mind on the structure of an experience how do we understand space? It's like, we all recognize that, you know, walls dissolve or they melt or they're different words that people use to describe how space changes under this influence. But what if you were a patient who lives like this, who lives in this world of, you know, non-ordinary states of perception, how do hospitals appear, how do you experience the hospitals? Like There are limits of his vocabulary and his expertise. So he brings in this architect, Hiroshi Izumi takes LSD. At one point he takes off his glasses because he now sees he can see better without his glasses. And he has this like deeply synesthetic experience where his sense of the world is very much disoriented and changed. And he's fascinated by this. He subsequently goes to the main hospital, which is built in a gothic style, like many, many, many major mental hospitals across North America and most of Western Europe at this time. And he takes LSD and wanders the halls. And... His, his assistant takes notes and keeps track of you know what he's experiencing including feeling like he couldn't take steps in the hallways and the tiles with different colors there was a black and white tile floor he felt he couldn't step into the dark tiles because they were holes. And so this simple insight sort of grows or develops into this idea that, you know, like there are certain features in a hospital that make patients stay in their rooms. Maybe not because they are antisocial, but they feel like they're going to fall in a hole. Like we could do better. So thinking about wall colors, cracks in the walls, you know, the tiled patterns, the artwork that's on display, even the layout of rooms, he begins to play around with those simple design features and ultimately recommends designing a hospital that is circular in shape and has rooms for patients to retreat into. So they have privacy, but also have a degree of surveillance so that they are safe. Doesn't end up getting built, but it gets promoted right up to the American Psychiatric Association level. He wins a prize for like the most innovative design and nurses who ultimately worked in his facility, which is rectangular, but still kind of met a lot of his design principles, routinely reported that patients there were happier. They were more likely to go outside. They maintained connections with their family to a greater degree than those in the previous sort of old style hospitals. It's a bit of a a tricky thing to evaluate because a lot of patients were now on antipsychotic medication and were moving out of hospitals. So you kind of got a mix of different things happening here. But nonetheless, I think his innovation in using these non-altered states of perception to empathize with the residents of those places is something quite remarkable.
1: Wow, that's amazing. Thank you so much for that. Okay, so one thing I wanted to talk to you a little bit more about, because when we had like our actual interview, I had already kept you like way too long. And so we were kind of hurrying up. But you had had the opportunity to talk with some of the participants of, was it the first ever psychedelic and alcoholism study? Or was it just like one of the early ones in Canada?
0: just just one of the early ones i can oh, okay. the first i don't know
1: <laughs> yeah uh so anyways one of the things that really struck me about it was that the indicator for success in it was returning to work and improvement in social relationships by interviewing loved ones around them. And it was not necessarily abstinence of alcohol. You had mentioned, well, yeah, I'll just let you kind of tell me a little bit more about that, because I just thought that was a really interesting study. And whatever you're able to tell us about your interviews with the participants, that was that was just really cool to hear too.
0: Yeah, this is a really amazing opportunity. And it's. I'm grateful to my colleague, Patrick Barber, for setting up these interviews. He's the one who managed to find these people because we weren't given access to patient reports when we first started doing the research in the early 2000s. And so we didn't have names, couldn't follow up with anybody and, you know, putting out an ad for like... Do you know anyone who was treated with LSD? People weren't answering our ads, and also it turns out that you know people in Saskatchewan often leave, um, so we didn't even know where to look. Uh, So it turns out they're in Calgary, but (laughs) most of them went. (laughs) But um, so anyway, the kind of mechanics of that were really challenging, and so instead we focused our efforts on trying to understand the shape of these experiments or interventions, even. I'm not even sure that people describe them as as experiments in the first place. It began in 1951, so fairly early, as uh, people like Humphrey Osmond and Abe Hoffer and John Smithies were developing this theory of a model psychosis. Uh, the story goes from a popper as he told me was that uh, he and Humphrey Osmond were saying you know some of these experiences and some of what we've shared with each other sounds a lot like what happens with our alcoholic patients when they hit rock bottom when they're going through delirium tremens when they're like at a kind of late stage of their alcoholism the word alcoholism wasn't even really used in regular it's still kind of evolving but this idea that drinking too much or problem drinking it wasn't a symptom of depression or anxiety or something like that but it it was its own Thing that needed to be studied. And so they started experimenting with the idea that what if we gave alcoholics, psychedelics, again, masculine and LSD in particular, sometimes in combination to hijack this experience. So instead of letting them hit rock bottom, what if you use this as a way of simulating rock bottom? The point of rock bottom is at least sort of in a pathological sense, was this is the point at which people more often say, Okay, I need help. Their ego shrinks enough that they seek help. And I thought, Well, what if we can intervene in that process more yeah. quickly? So it wasn't and
1: necessarily it, like, Let's give them a terrible time. And it was, Let's give them a place where they can like have a fresh perspective and change their mind.
0: Well, I think that evolved. I think initially they did think this is going to be a bad. Oh, time.
1: no way. I didn't realize <laughs> Okay, gotcha. <laughs> They're trying to simulate a rock bottom.
0: Yeah. And, and that quickly <laughs> Changed once they reached the kind of patient population and started using this with alcoholics. Alcoholics were not coming in saying, like, wow, that was the scariest thing. I got to stop. I got to, you know, fly right. Instead, they were like, that was beautiful. I had a conversation with God and I promised to be better. I, I should mention, each of these interviews were conducted 40 to 50 years after their treatments. And each of the men, they were all men I spoke with and it was mostly men in the studies, each of them wept as they talked about these experiences, they were very profound, wow. very emotional charged. Mm. And one talked about in his experience, he saw his birth. He sort of like was watching outside of himself and he saw how much pain he had caused his mother and that he was continuing to cause her pain by his action. And it was those moments that became insightful, not because the researchers initially thought so, but uh, very quickly, like within 18 months, their first published reports were about these insightful flashes. And then the next set of reports were about insight mixed with a spiritual context. So the number of people reporting that they had seen God, talked to God, many of these were in a Christian context, not all. Um, There were a number of Jewish participants as well. But talking about, you know, a kind of religious experience um, was Filtered through different uh, theologies, but nonetheless, it, it started to shape the experience. And they thought, well, we need to get some theologians in on this to help us make sense of this. And then it blossomed. We need music. We need comfortable settings. We need, and they start establishing what we now call a set and setting. Um, and they did call mm. it like setting, but they didn't call it set and setting, but they used <laughs> the word. Yeah. And again, that kind of runs against the grain of really focusing on a pharmaceutical substance and its reaction. Because now we're like widening the context. So we do this. Plus music, plus preparation, plus integration, words that I'm using from today. But the concepts were very much aligned with what was happening in the past as well. This idea that you needed to create a comfortable space. And these men I interviewed really had vivid memories of what had happened. And when I asked them, you know, how many people have you told this story to? Or is this something you, you know, tell at dinner parties ever since? And one told me he'd never told the story before these were very intimate moments, very private moments. And with the backlash against psychedelics beginning in the 1960s, they didn't feel comfortable sharing these stories out of fear that it would reflect poorly on them, children. And so it's interesting to see that they've carried these around with them.
1: Yeah. And in secret too. I mean, like stories you don't tell, you usually forget over time, I feel like in, in my experience. And so that's, that's really impressive. So the early studies, when they were just like, Let's simulate rock bottom. What all went into that? Did they just walk into the room and here's a drug and they're just trying to like see what it does kind of thing? Or did they have any kind of preparation or like therapeutic setting afterwards?
0: Um, I think it was certainly evolving and it wasn't as complex as we saw even by the end of the 1950s, but they had a protocol manual that they put together in 1952, so one of the earliest ones, and even there, they're talking about, okay, we need a comfortable couch, we need the option of eye shades, we need to think about music and ambient sounds. So you, know, you don't want it outside a construction site. You want access to a private washroom close by. Hospital settings aren't ideal, but they were cheap. Um, they were available, no fluorescent lights. So already by, like I said, 1952 is pretty early to be putting together some of these ideas and they're rough notes. They're not in a glossy pamphlet or something, but they're sort of working through these different criteria for making sure people feel comfortable. And early on, again, within the first 18 months, they realized that it helped, people felt anxious initially so like when is this thing going to take effect am I going to hallucinate what's going to happen to me will I lose my mind those kinds of like nervous thoughts came to the fore so they found initially that music was introduced just to sort of distract people in a gentle way and music ultimately as we probably know became foundational became fundamental to setting up that space they also brought in photographs sometimes they had art abstract art impressionist art things that you could lose yourself in family photographs they encouraged people to bring in family photo albums and that became a point of sometimes people pushed them away and didn't want to engage with them and other times it was a way of relaxing into the moment but also setting that emotional context for some of the conversations that would come up not usually during the experience but a day or two after you know and sometimes the the sort of uh, full-blown psychedelic experience didn't didn't match you know thinking about your family. But it was the day later that you're like, you know, I had this encounter with whatever bizarre thing it might be, or it might be rather mundane. And it helped people to reflect on what that symbolized, the relationship with their wives, their relationship to their mothers. Often those are features that come through even their relationship with uh, the religion or their workplace. There were 12 questions that were asked at the beginning before people went through this experience. And I can share them with you if I can find them easily enough, but they're quite basic. It's like, why do you think this might help you describe who you are? And you can see it kind of really open-ended so people can sort of take that and run with it as they wanted. And those questions and the answers that they provided often you see those kind of coming through in the follow-up reports as well. You know, I described myself as this, but I realized that that's not actually who I am. And so it created some of the structure for those integration moments and those, and really those therapeutic sessions that follow.
2: It kind of sounds a lot like, like modern day, like journaling before a session kind of thing, like these very broad, open-ended questions, just to kind of get these ideas popping around in your head before you sit down.
0: Very much so. Yeah. It
2: also, it's interesting to me that we figured this kind of stuff out, like, you know, how important setting is, that music can play a big role, all of this stuff. Um, But that's old news. You look at any traditional use of these things and, you know, you go to an ayahuasca ceremony and the the shaman is singing the whole time. You know, they have a a very specific building, even the maloka that they use for the thing. You don't just use the shaman's like living room, you Mm -hmm. know, I find that really interesting. We've kind of come back to that from a more research-based angle of, oh, when we introduce these things, we have better outcomes.
1: white people had to discover it on our own we had to figure it out on our own
0: (laughs) I I think that happens both like across cultures and over time that some of this is like being rediscovered today again and this has been happening perhaps with different language and perhaps with different contexts but like some of these core ideas are certainly they run right through this history
2: that's right kind of speaking on of that I'd love to hear about the kind of more traditional use of psychedelics in Canada because you know we don't have like peyote up here we don't have we. I think we have we have psilocybin mushrooms but they're not as abundant as they are say in like the southern states and Central and South America mm-hmm. what kind of stuff were we using up here in Canada that we can kind of pull from in our own indigenous use
0: it's a it's such a good question and I've been trying to sort of fumble around to, to get clarification for myself and I wish I had a better answer for you it does seem that although there are sort of organically growing plants and fungi that produce psychedelic effects they really haven't played a major role in Canada in the same way and we have more in terms of imported so we we did import uh, peyote the native american church is registered also in canada for registered chapters sort of at the border actually of saskatchewan and alberta um, and they had a legal agreement to bring in peyote from texas that changed over time um, but peyote ceremonies still have a religious exemption in canada so there are still peyote ceremonies here again the plant is imported but you know i think one of the other things that kind of excites me about this a little bit is well, two things one i think working with ethnobotanists or reading ethnobotanists from the Pacific Northwest that sort of move along that coast up into Canada, part of the way they describe this is a lot of these plants are part of something bigger. And so we don't talk about or you don't necessarily have the nomenclature for saying like this psychedelic plant or this plant that produced, you know, was was an entheogen or or whatever language was being used. If we think about looking into indigenous ceremonies or indigenous practices and rituals associated with transition, uh, with healing, with seeking insight into difficult moments or a spiritual quest, you might see different plants coming into that that are native to that region. And some of them might have a psychedelic effect or be used in a psychedelic way, even cannabis, for example, which was used in a psychedelic way, even though we don't consider it really a true psychedelic. And I think more research would need to be done before, like I certainly couldn't answer the question and say, these are the three things or at seven or whatever it was, but there are rituals that involve non-ordinary states of consciousness in a richer tradition of indigenous uses across Canada. There are ayahuasca ceremonies that have been done in Canada legally through Indigenous organizations, but again, it's not like ayahuasca. There's no Amazon region of Canada, you know. Oh, so, not even close. Like importing these things, it's all importation. But I think there's also a common language and a legal apparatus in place to support that and recognize it. But it's kind of like those where we started with things happened that weren't recorded or that haven't been shared in, on uh, the internet. So it feels like they haven't happened. But there are reasons why people haven't shared that information or why it's not more publicly available. And I think it's, it's interesting. We think about those Indigenous ceremonies that were the history of Canada is like a history of making that illegal and making people feel bad <laughs> or participating in other belief systems systems and there's good reason why that information isn't readily available yeah
1: sure that's a really good point to make about how like we focus in on psychedelics because it's like it's the plant that we're the most interested in or whatever but in actuality like you know in my layman studies i've come across a few pretty old writings where it's like detailing medicines of different areas or like different plants of different tribes and like you know it like i'll have to go to page like 50 or 60 to get to like mushrooms or you know peyote or, or whatever cactus and it, it's that many plants that are you know a lot of them are just as important in a lot of ways in that culture and and we kind of just like forget about it and a lot of them are used in combination or like during like ceremonies as well as ways to to be a part of it too. And so was there like a, a point where mescaline kind of first started getting transported into Canada? Was that like pretty recent or
0: 1912 I'm pretty sure by Merck um, in Germany and it supplies were available to researchers for you know in the 1920s and 30s there were like a handful of studies done using musculin, but it was kind of you know some of it was used recreationally but amongst philosophers I don't know if that counts as recreation or not that must be like part of their their job I guess yeah that's um, work
1: that's the year on <laughs> the clock like
0: <laughs> yeah Exactly. Um, But, you know, jokes aside, I don't think it, it didn't have a lot of cachet as a research tool. This is also a, an age of like looking for how we can harness the powers of plants for a variety of things, whether it's aspirin, cocaine or rubber. Um, You know, this is like still industrializing part time in the Western world. Chemicals are being harnessed for all sorts of things and psychedelics are kind of in the hopper. But their specific uses, I don't think, really grabbed attention as something that would be really exciting for a mass market, right? This isn't rubber, this isn't tea, Uh, it's not even opium. But you imagine like these grand empires that are out there scanning the flora and fauna for good chemical products. Psychedelics don't really make the top of the list. So mescaline was known, but it didn't really have an obvious application. And as far as I know, Osmond came to Canada in 1951 and made an application for mescaline and had some head supplies right away. Again, to get this for research purposes was not so bizarre. His interest in it was a little bit strange relative to his peers but getting access to it wasn't that hard he did get peyote buttons later and he went to anthropologists for the peyote buttons and I believe that the Native American church registered in Saskatchewan was related to the research that was taking place here as well and certainly they testified on behalf of the Native American church to maintain its religious exemption been wow, to that's work. interesting um, yeah they, they participated in ceremonies here they being Humphrey Osmond Abram Poffer, Duncan Blewett these kind of early day researchers and took their claims right to the federal government saying like these are important spiritual ceremonies they should be allowed to continue this they should be allowed to import peyote and the federal government said no um said peyote was a, a dangerous narcotic and uh you know couldn't be used they're allowed to practice in a christian way but not to uh use peyote which is of course a lovely colonial sentiment
1: <laughs> you can uh you can 100 percent worship in your way and my way
0: Right, yeah, as long as <laughs> like what I think. <laughs> I'm certainly not the only one to say this. There are a number of scholars who have recognized that some of the Native American church practices, because it is a syncretic church that brings in these Christian elements, that there is an astute way of showcasing the Christian veneer of this spiritual expression in an effort to, like, get rid of the police, essentially, in a shorthanded way. <laughs>
1: yeah, I think Bring Hamilton that. Morris did an episode on that where he was at a, he was attending, like, a mushroom ceremony or something like that, and he, like looked over and it was like a shrine of the Virgin Mary, like in the area that they were going to be in.
0: (laughs) Same with Santo Diami, like the ayahuasca religion as well is very syncretic, bringing together different elements. But with the, I don't want to say veneer as in it's superficial, but you know, it's, it's in your face. The Virgin Mary is present at a lot of these ceremonies and maybe future anthropologists, you know, a couple hundred years from now will be like, that was totally Bogus or maybe not. I don't know.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's hard to say. I mean, I, I went to um, a private college, so I I have a whole bunch of friends who are Christian, and I have a few of them who have also tried psychedelics. And I think that if you go into it like as a Christian and you're like wanting to meet God, the God that you meet will probably be the God that you believe in. And so I think that it can definitely go hand in hand a hundred percent. But I think mm-hmm. that there's also like I've known people who are like, oh, this is actually like a lot smaller than I thought it was or. <laughs>
0: yeah. Well, and it, it raises interesting questions about, you know, if you're trying to regulate psychedelics as a medicine, then maybe we should just tone down the conversations about religion, spirituality, Christianity, whatever it might be, because these aren't typically, certainly not today. These aren't typically bedfellows. You know, we, we don't think of like, you know what you need to treat your depression is a greater connection with God or you need to understand your place in the universe in a different way. Like, I think that for some, uh, psychonauts, psychedelics have been a response to existential crisis, and that doesn't fit into the DSM in a neat packaged way. No no insurance company, whether that's a Canadian health care style or American style, is like, we're going to tick this box and say, this is the category of illness that you have. And again, there's this kind of, I think, a bit of a, a moment of clash between what psychedelics represent in terms of what they're actually healing or what language people give to that process and what our medical system has evolved to look like our our healthcare system. And again, I'm not talking, you know, Medicare versus Obamacare, but what counts as legitimate trauma or stress or illness such that you don't go to work or that, that it has a kind of capital in our modern life. And who
1: gets to decide that, right? Yeah. Yeah. That's really interesting. I know that you got to get going here soon. Is there any other story that you're like, this is really incredible and I just, gotta share it because i think it's so cool or
0: i've been doing this stuff for 20 years like i'm like (laughs) i'm working on a book right now that hopefully will be done soon and and off to press for next year but it's i'm trying to sort of really step beyond canada and look at a long history of psychedelics and their visual representation. And it's got me thinking a lot of different things. Like it certainly helped me to evolve in my own thinking on this. And also just sort of what's at stake in the 21st century when it comes to thinking about what are we trying to revive in a so-called psychedelic renaissance? That's not really a story or an insight, just that um, it's a really exciting time to be thinking about what's at stake with the future of psychedelics. And um, I thank you for putting on this program and all the work that you guys have been doing to bring these conversations to bear.
1: Thank you. Thank you for coming. Is there, uh, is there anything you want to promote that you have out right now that you want to talk about? Get your plugs out there.
0: <laughs> See, the last book I think was the acid room, the trials and tribulations of psychedelic psychiatry at Hollywood hospital in Vancouver. I can't remember what the full title is, but <laughs>
2: <that's> <laughs> never.
0: It, I mean, it's kind of fun. It's a it's a really quick read. It's a short book. Um, but what we tried to do there is really sort of bring forward the cases of patients themselves and use those to really pull the story forward or move the story along. Part of what we were amazed by, we got access to 500 case files, with the, the patient files from that um, hospital in New Westminster. And one of the things that was really fascinating to us was just the diversity of reasons why people felt that psychedelics would help them. And it kind of pushes through some of the standard narratives or some of what we thought was the case in terms of why people... People were seeking out these therapies and some of it is bordering on recreational, but a lot of it is, is a much deeper sense of a quest for finding meaning or finding an understanding in what feels like a misaligned life. I don't know. It was very, I felt very sort of optimistic working on that project, you know, that there's a lot of good, ordinary people finding their way.
1: That was a fantastic sales pitch. I've I've skimmed through, I've at least skimmed through parts of that book uh, when I was writing up the story where I had interviewed you or I've come across people who are writing on it because anytime I'm, if you're looking at Canadian history, it's either coming from you or referencing you, I feel like. So <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much, Erica. And I'll let you uh, get back to your day now.
0: Thanks so much. It was wonderful talking with you. Take yeah, care. It was
2: great
1: chatting with you, Erica.
0: Yeah, thanks, Justin. Bye. Jason. Bye. Yeah,
1: bye-bye. Thank you for listening to the Tripsitter podcast. Don't forget to check out our article featuring Erica available now on our Substack, which reminds me, Tripsitter depends on the support of our viewers. If you like what we're doing and want to make sure that we keep doing it, head over to tripsitter.substack.com where you can subscribe to receive even more premium content. Want to show support without a monetary requirement? Like and share this podcast and give us a rating. It really helps boost our listenership and would mean a lot to us. We also offer a free subscription on our Substack and don't forget to give us a follow on Twitter, Instagram, threads, and blue sky to stay up to date with all of the exciting things we're doing. As always, remember, no drug is inherently good or bad. They're just chemicals, natural or unnatural, that exist in the world. It's our relationship with them and how we interact with them that makes the difference. Have a safe trip.